Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Dano Says So, brought to you by Trust Records as part of the Evergreen Podcast family. Today's guest is probably best known to people as the front person for Death by Stereo, if not that, Manic Hispanic, if not that, Voodoo Glow Skulls. He is also the proprietor of program or the co-proprietor of program Skate and Sound. And to my shock, but certainly to my understanding, given everything that he puts his back into, he was recently named one of the 125 most influential people in Orange County by the Orange County Register. To people outside the state of California who don't really know OC, it's not a small place. It is maybe Los Angeles's little brother, but it packs a pretty hard punch when they brawl. Uh, so it's no, it's no, it's no small, it's no, it's no, it's it's no small fiefdom to be called out like that. So congratulations on that, Ephraim Schultz. Thank you for doing Thanks. this. You know, uh, it, uh, as a guy that used to get kicked out of places in Orange County all the time, I can't believe they did have me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's get let's get straight into this this Orange County saturated strain of thought. A lot of my guests are of a similar age to mine. You're a little bit younger, and they're people I've known yeah. for years and years and years. You and I have been in the same periphery for decades. Uh, we have a ton of friends in common, but unlike yeah. a lot of those guests, you're not East Coast, you're not Midwest, you are from essentially my hometown, so yeah. we have to sort of plumb, plumb some similar and some different experiences. Tell me about OC life for a young Ephraim Schultz, and I mean a young Ephraim Schultz. Oh, yeah, yeah. When I was a little kid, when we moved to Orange County from, uh, we were in, we were in Redondo Beach before we were in, in uh, we moved to Buena Park first. Okay. And then from Buena Park to Fullerton, then La Habra, then back to Fullerton and La Habra again. We bounced around a bit, but the majority of my time was spent in Fullerton. Okay. You know, uh, all elementary, all that. And uh, in uh, I lived in East Fullerton, but I went to elementary school in West Fullerton at Richmond Elementary over there behind the Taqueria de Anda, the famous Taqueria everybody goes to. A lot of fights in that parking lot. Uh, uh yeah i mean uh did you young, arrive did you arrive in town as a baby punk rocker or did that happen here that happened here that happened in fullerton i uh probably in about the sixth grade was when i got introduced to punk rock when i heard the toy dolls for the first time and i just thought it, it was the toy dolls are fucking insane and uh a kid played me the toy dolls and fucking oh and then from toy dolls it went from Toy Dolls to Black Flag. So it was a quick jump. And when I heard Black Flag, that was even like, what the fuck is this? You know, right. so, just, you know, and everything I could absorb in between because, uh, you know, uh, I had this friend, Rafael, this kid, he was from El Salvador. He would always give me tapes and it would be like, whether it would be like the English beat or like like a, a mixtape of like rock and espanol shit he would just give me cool shit you know like this is what is the cool shit of all this shit and you know or a, a fucking Susie and the banshees thing or something like that so i learned about a lot of shit from this kid rafael and i just brought him up the other day because i fucking have uh, uh, wherever you are man fucking thanks he showed me morrissey you know what I, mean? I learned about the spits from him you know and 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 uh you know so to a lot of people, I think raising that issue of the toy dolls as being like sort of your gateway drug. It's weird, weird, man, right? Well, you're younger than I am, but you also got to start. Sixth, sixth grade is young. What I don't think a lot of people know about L.A. and Orange County back then is via Gary Tovar and via, via things like the Olympic Auditorium, there was a heavy, heavy, heavy focus on the British stuff. Oh, yeah. They brought the first British bands out here, right? And they, and they were the, one, the only ones that initially he seemed to trust to headline the biggest rooms. 
So young punks in Southern California, yeah, we got, you know, I turned my mom onto the addicts, you know? No, dude, they're, they're amazing. Like, what's not to love? You know what I mean? Right. Hey, and, like, there was Toy Dolls and Fear at the Palladium. They played with, like, heavy bands that were on, God, gnarly. It's, it's weird. But I guess back then, weird bands could play together. You know, well, you, you could would see look, with, like, Instead or something. You would look you know at the I mean? bottom of those Olympic bills, and, you know, there'd be all these big English bands in all this crazy type, and then you'd get down low and you'd see negative approach or the effigies or uniform choice down there in the small type. And so eventually, gnarly. you know, and eventually like for uniform choice, that ended up being a huge nationally recognized flag for us all to wave. Absolutely. Fucking. I, I, I just talked about uniform choice the other day and who is someone brought them up about the era where they're like, man, I came to it late and you know, it's, Saw it on a flyer. It was like, oh, wow. You know, then it was like a metal band. And then we talked about our, our love and our uh, hate of the metal era. But I, I, I loved it. I loved it when bands turned metal. I thought it was cool. If they'd turned metal, I'd have been fine. I'm the wrong guy. And Longer, he knows this. I mean, he and I are still in touch. But I am the wrong guy to ask about late model uniform choice. I was too <laughs> close. I was too close to it. And I find that whole album like eating like eating syrup without pancakes. I, I, yeah. I heard Uniform Choice on a, someone gave me a blank tape with Uniform Choice on it, I remember, and just being like, oh, you know, like, well, also that, that fast, who, what drummer ever is this fast? That, you know what I mean? That's right. I mean, that demo came out of my high school at, during so the years cool. I was there and it gave me superheroes. You know, it gave me, these are my people. Heroes. This is the team I'm on. So oh, yeah, I wasn't ready for the cool. evolution. This That's interview is about room. you, and right now we're talking about Ephraim, young Ephraim in Fullerton. Would that make, say, the adolescence or that empire your sort of your spiritual godfathers in that music? Or one hundred fucking percent, dude. Yeah. And uh, it, it's funny, man, because I remember I, I've talked about this, dude. I, I remember ordering the Welcome to Reality seven inch out of Thrasher, mm -hmm. and I lived on Ash Avenue in Fullerton, and I'm a bazillion years later telling Soto, man. I remember I ordered that fucking seven inch and it never fucking came. And then like a year and a half later, it just showed up and I was like, what? And he's all, Oh yeah, man. What street did you live on? He's all, <laughs> yeah. He's all, we were like probably a couple blocks from you, man. And he's all, we would just open those envelopes up and just go buy beer. <laughs> that was so fast, dude. I hate to jump ahead, but you, yeah. you, you kind of opened the door and, from there, maybe we can circle back to Death by Stereo. But I mean, we all obviously remember when Soto passed away, and that's a yeah bigger. That's a bigger and more intimate thing for you. I gotta say, I don't know how it resonates nationally, let alone internationally. But I can't remember a bigger kick in the stomach, emotionally and, yeah. and creatively, in Southern California, sort of in my punk rock lifetime. Dude, I, I, I like, dude, did how could anything exist without them? Without right. him? Without yeah. Soto, how could any of the whole platform, I mean, everything you've heard, like the adolescence you hear in every aspect of, there's new generations of people making music that have no idea that those ideas came from them, right. you know, and, and, and dude, Soto was just, uh, there's not, there was no one more perfect than him, dude, he wrote perfect songs, dude, like, it was insane, he could sing like fucking Prince, dude, you know what I mean, it was People don't know how talented that guy was. I met him you know? incredibly late in the game, and he was an yeah. absolute prince about everything I asked of him. Uh, we, uh, Paul, suggested one of Soto's guitars that was sitting in uh, was sitting in the studio when Strange yeah. Club was recording, and we used it first, and then got a hold of Steve and asked permission afterwards. 
He said it was cool. But by way of that conversation and trying to be respectful, we asked him if he would be, if he would be play the bartender in a video of us, right? And he was all about he was all about it. It never happened because of time and then eventually because he was gone. Right. But the guy didn't know me from Adam and was absolutely all about it. Dude, he was so cool. And he loved he just dude, there'd be times like because I, I I tour managed a few adolescence shows here and there, mm-hmm. and just I've always hung out with the guys and stuff. And there was times where I'd just be like, "Who is this band?" There's you know like, "What is this band?" He's all, "Oh, the drummers from blah blah blah." Like he just mm-hmm. loved supporting the scene, and you know he he knew right. who you were. So he, uh, mm-hmm. immediately you're, you're just like, "Oh, friend," you know what I mean? Like, right? He just uh, dude, he just really like endlessly supported the scene. He would like turn me on to bands. You, you know what I mean? Like, what? How do you even? How do you know about all this shit, man? Like, it's crazy, man. Right. Uh, it's pretty wild. So I said we'd get we'd we'd we'd, we'd circle back to you as a musician. And well, and first we're talking about you as a listener. But anyway, how early in your life did you meet Paul Miner? I met Paul Miner in ninety four five. So not not that long. Be, not that long before Death by Stereo. No, not like. Kind of right before it, I had a punk okay. band called Clint, and we'd play in like backyard parties. And I was trying to play guitar and sing, and mm-hmm. it wasn't working. And uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, we were doing our thing, and I met Paul through that. Paul helped us make our demo tape, then mm-hmm. helped us make a CD, and we were just friends. And then uh, he was jamming with these guys already, and I just kept hanging out, and I just kept bugging him, and like, dude, I think think I could pull this. Like, let me, let me, you know, like. Right. Let me try and sing on this. Let me try and sing on this. And they they weren't really feeling it. And I kept bugging them. And then they finally let me try some ideas out. And it yeah, rocked, that, dude. Well, that's another it personality. That's another personality that's in your life that I think and I think play has played a huge role in your personal history and, and vice versa. You and yeah. his that you know, you and I are in a perfect position to shed light on, which is if people don't know, I mean, our friend Paul is fast becoming one of the most influential producers. And tech, tech, recording technicians in in all of underground music, all the people we used to talk about when we were kids or when we were younger. We, oh, it'd be so cool to record with you know Steve Albini, or it'd be so cool to record with Bob. I'm like, dude, Paul, you're that dude now. There's right. kids having that conversation about Paul. It's like, right. what? And you were both ori- essentially original Death by Stereo, right? Yep. Yep. So Death by Stereo. In the 90s, Paul Miner, Paul's not there anymore. I don't know if any originals besides you are, but that's how many decades now? That's how long? That's oh, fucking crazy. Yeah. Do you Whew. know specifically how many years you've been doing it? Uh, well, since 90, we started in 98. Okay. Now, well, we started in 97. I guess we were officially a band in 98. Like, we're death by stereo in 98, you know, but that's we a were quarter, That's a quarter century, sir. Jeez. It's fucking... Yeah, it, uh, it hurts right <laughs> well, as a band death by stereo starts off i believe on indecision lands in yes. a few other places kind of exposed you to some some cornerstone labels and some of the most influential movers and shakers in punk rock and in hardcore from the west coast uh all positive experiences how. amazing experiences i don't know how dude we're the luckiest dudes ever man yeah. and fucking we uh we we made a demo and then we made a seven inch on Paul's label Dental Records and uh, <laughs> and Actually, uh, now I really wish I'd brought up Dental Records first. Yeah, so good. and then uh, the the uh, 
that was recorded at his home studio called Beef Studios, okay. and uh, which was at Judy Miner's house, who was the most amazing woman ever. Uh, we did that, and then we made our first record on Indecision, and we made that deal over a basket of French fries at Norm's in Santa Ana, and uh, the, nor- the, nor- the Norm's at Seventeenth and Grand or Seventeenth. Yep, and right there by. It was, it was, we were playing at Coos Cafe and then, you know, we walked over to Norm's with Dave for the big record label dinner, you know, like, <laughs> here's the talk. We we're like, whoa. And, uh, we're just like, the fries are on us, Dave. And, uh, <laughs> and fucking, uh, we, uh, <clears throat> we made that record and we, dude, we just started fucking touring and touring our asses off. And, and, uh, then Epitaph happened pretty soon after. And, uh, it was just kind of unbelievable. I mean, because of Dave Mandel, I, I I really think because of Paul Miner, Dave Mandel, and Brett Gerwitz enabled me to see the planet, dude. Yeah, like, well, I mean that's that's epitaph at a point dude. in its evolution where it's moving to a completely different scale. Dude, yeah, we were just like, what is this? Like, like we didn't really understand everything. We we still looked at a lot of things like everything was a joke and we're just, we're just super punk or whatever. You know what I mean? Like we didn't even get it. Like, all right, we're going to meet with you guys and we're going to take pictures. And we were just goofing around the whole fucking time. Cause we right. just didn't get it yet. You know, like, like, no, we really need like a picture. You know what I mean? Like we, we didn't understand anything. We were, it was a trip, man. Just getting slammed into this new system. You know, all of a sudden you're like, Whoa, we're in fucking Boise, Idaho. And there's a fucking bunch of people here. And fuck, we're in like the local like zine and the fuck, holy right. shit, you know, like what the fuck? It's and I cool. mean, now I guess probably even conducted in a completely different fashion. You've had a good front row seat to this music executed on a lot of different levels. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, and uh, getting to a certain level and going back down to another level. I've seen. I've got well, to. Like, let's talk about that financially. Yeah. Financially, one obvi- obviously has its its appeal but on a certain level and even in a space that you curate which i want to get to later do you find that there's nothing like that smaller show or smaller space intimacy or that forced hunger i think it's i think there's a strong argument to be made in its favor oh dude i will play happily fucking play a squat in fucking the middle of fucking nowhere with dbs tomorrow let's go and fucking fuck that shit up dude (laughs) you know what i mean like you know but but uh uh I'm not going to lie, dude. I fucking am so lucky. I'm so fucking lucky that I get to go play these enormo shows with Voodoo Glow Skulls, man. You know what I mean? Like, right. we play regular it's shows more- like anyone, but we get to play some big shit, man. Like, it's crazy. You know, like- you, you were one of those people who I was familiar with enough that we could have very honest conversations, even when I'd be trying to book a show, like maybe a little bit out of my depth. Yeah. And I'm, I'm remembering when Death by Stereo and Union 13 and Last Gang and Dun Dying all played together. And Absolutely. I was putting that show together. And you hit me with, with Death by Stereo's guarantee. And it was not some obscene number, particularly by my own understanding now. I mean, 411 right. at 411 asked for that or maybe more depending on the venue just over the course of a weekend this year right but it was my Ooh. first real expectation or my first real experience with dealing with bands that had created like a sustenance number had come to you know sort of what they needed to keep the trains running yeah yeah that i've never had to go through that i've never experienced that evolution was that when you got to that point where you had to sort of show self-respect and present certain expectations in a business sphere, was that uncomfortable or were you ready? For- it's uncomfortable, yeah. you know, and 
and d- dealing with money, man, it sucks. And, 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 you know, it, when you're at a bigger level, there's people that, you know, you can kind of play good cop, bad cop with and put in the right. middle of the, deal, you know what I mean? And then as another level, you got to be hands-on, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. we got to be totally hands-on it. And it, it is uncomfortable at times. Sometimes it's not depending on who we're, who we're dealing with. You know what I mean? Sometimes it sucks to be like, Hey man, we just have to do this to be able to make this happen. You know, it sucks, but well, that show do it. was especially when guys, maybe not everyone in the band, some guys in the band only play music for a living. So it's the only way they, you know, they get paid. Absolutely. And, and, you know, because I make my living entirely outside of music and have for the last 20 years, right? Right. My perspective or my sense of practical application, the financial into punk rock, it never intruded into my life because it never played a role in playing my bills. Right. So it's like kind of a baptism by fire. And, you know, I I did music with a professional musician this year who, when I played with him before, he was a teenager who was just worried about whether or not he could get a 7-Eleven burrito. You know, well, okay, I, can't, exactly. I, can't, I can't expect him to be the same guy now. Yeah. And you're, and yeah, now they're, you know, you're looking at these guys that are like adding up their gigs for the month. You know, this is how I'm going to make them, you know, answering to answering to the missus about what they've got booked. I'm betting, you know, dude. Yeah. It's so crazy. And now shit. Yeah. You're totally right. And fucking shit is, it got harder. Shit got way more expensive. Things are different now. You know, it's right. tough. It's tough for a touring band, you know, right. but, uh, but we're, we're doing it. And, and dude, I'm, I'm lucky, man. When I got in the Voodoo Glow Skulls, dude, I remember talking to Dan Palmer. If mm-hmm. everyone out there who was the guitar player of Death by Stereo, we played together for a bazillion years. He, uh, you know, he also plays in the band Zebrahead that's massively successful overseas mm-hmm. and kind of everywhere. They're popular here too. But right. he called me and he's all, dude, he's all, you got in the Voodoo Glow Skulls. What the fuck? You know, and I'm, I'm all, yeah. And he's like, it's not supposed, guys our age aren't supposed to get a new bands, man. Right. And he, and he's, he's like this is rad like you and i can talk off camera about that as it applies to me because it's the only way i know how to do it right yeah start a new band you know yep. what i mean that's what we do we're fucking we're artists you know right. what I mean? so let's let's compare the experience you just brought up which was which is voodoo close calls coming onto the picture and in that same space let's uh include manic hispanic before i want to circle back and ask some other oh yeah about manic hispanic but both of those bands are largely, especially on stage, humor-driven. Right? Oh, 100%. And that's a way you and I are completely different. I cannot imagine me, between songs, sure, but I cannot imagine yeah. me trying to sing or move funny. It just won't happen. It, 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 it was one hell of a change from doing Death by Stereo my whole life. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, we are a pissed motherfucking band, man. Right? You know what I mean? And, and hardcore, dude. And, and And I just, I don't know, man. I feel like I'm like, wow. I'm like manic when i got in manic it was like holy shit i am like a character now like it, it's fun right. and i that's how i approach it you know mm-hmm. i'm a i'm a care i'm a different character in each band and fucking it's dude it's a lot of fucking fun it's it, weird it looks like it and you as an outsider you're you're made for it i mean right now you're not speaking nobody can see us and you're smiling ear to ear you're making me look like i don't <laughs> even have teeth i mean by nature you are you are someone who uses the word incredible and amazing a thousand times more a year more than I do. So I, I can see I can see you enjoying it. First shows, like maybe first shows in the glow skulls. Was there an oh god, I've got to go be this guy now vibe? Or dude, it, it was intense because our first show was the It's Not Dead Festival in San Bernardino. And dude, there was like a cool 10,000 people there, dude. Oh, and uh <laughs> by the time no effects got on, it was like a bazillion million right. people, but uh, uh, that was my first show, 
And I, dude, it was a really short amount of time from when I tried out for the band mm-hmm. to when we started rehearsing. And then we just went for it, man. And we, they took the gig. It was a great intro to me. But dude, Death by Stereo at a certain point, dude, mm-hmm. holy shit. Some of that shit we were playing was big, dude, you know, and, and right. but it was mine. Which is in which is an interesting thing to think about. Say, yeah, put, put some meat on that bone because yeah, kind of grasp it, what you're saying. Because okay, someone in a Southern California band in the last couple of years, who we're sort of at a similar level of exposure and of creative output, asked me if I would sing for their band or if I'd like to hear their new material. And I listened to it; it was good. And I right. thought about it, and I had to come back and just say, "Now that's yours. That's your baby. You've created that, and I've." Never done something that I didn't birth. I'm not saying there's any yeah. moral problem with it. Creatively, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And maybe I'm just too narcissistic. It's you tough. went ahead. Well, you went ahead and braved that space. So tell me about it. I had to learn how to sing some other guys totally stock. And here's the thing, dude. I saw Voodoo a thousand times, party yeah. days, you know what I mean? Old days, just on tons of shows. Like when that was a brand new sound, like, what the fuck is this? Some of it I knew inside and out, you know, but dude, it was still it was until you're actually doing it i'm like holy shit this dude is a giant dude with fucking gigantic lungs who <laughs> fucking just put out you know like right like the, the sound and i'm like fuck this is fucking hard to do because they play so fucking fast mm-hmm. and dude frank was a gangster dude he he could write a thousand words into the shortest you know and i'm just like how is he doing this live right and so do do it it was definitely really challenging and then figuring out how to like honor the style on some things, but do some things my own way and finding that balance and which opened up more with time. But uh, dude, those first few shows were nerve wracking because it was all like big shit. You know, I was like, dude, fuck. Holy shit, guys. You know, like yeah, I can only imagine. It was incredible, though. At one point, you know, Voodoo had a couple tunes on the radio and so we go to different places and it's just like, whoa, like you play the song and the whole place, rah, you know, just yells it back. You know, and I was like, whoa, damn, this is fucking cool. You know, but we also at the same time, the next day we'll be in Tennessee somewhere playing in a little punk spot. Sure. Okay. For people, so let's, you know? let's, let's do this next part exactly the way that people probably would not want us to. And that at least for a moment, for 10 seconds, when they hear how I yeah. come at it, we'll make people go, oh God. Yeah. But, Talk about manic Hispanic to a freckle-faced white boy from Orange County. And I'll tell you why. I, put it that way. I guess because it's an interesting band. I remember when the when the band first came out and I first heard yeah. the name, and I found it difficult to comment on or to narrate or to apply myself to any kind of a narrative just when you're in Orange County to talk about music. Because first off, how do you act like you know exactly what the fuck it's about or how it affects anybody? You know, like how yeah. it how it how it speaks to a Hispanic. And, totally. second, and secondly, race, eternally the third rail. You guys come at it and you bring some light, hilarious fucking material. At the end of the day, the band's called Manic Hispanic, and it's not a new band. It arrived during no. more, during more, during clumsier times. Exactly. Uh, I, you know what's funny is I, I remember uh, Soto telling me about how uh, they played at, the, the first time I saw Manic Hispanic, was in the pizza pub at Cal State Fullerton. They played the okay. noontime like free show. And mm-hmm. I it was my last year of being in school. I was at the continuation across the street at that point. Oh, and we good got for out you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got and, kicked and, out. I got kicked out of modern day. No judgment. You know. you know, you know. And so like I was I was there and we got out at noon. So 
me and my homie, uh, my homie Skunky, we fucking like, we're like across the street. Let's go see this band because we saw the Flyers and Adolescents, Cadillac Tramps. Oh, we love all those bands. And fucking, uh, we ran over to see them, and that was like their second show. And I remember that Soto telling me, "He's like, oh, you were at that show." I'm like, "Yeah, fuck, dude, it was groundbreaking, you know." And he and he's like, he's like, "Oh, dude," he goes, "At the time, he goes, all the Mexicans weren't totally down with it." He's like, they they thought we were like, they took it the wrong way. And he goes, the 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 Chicano fucking whoever at the school had a little protest about it. Like, we don't want this, which is ironic because now it's we're very accepted. But it's you another, know? it's but it's another piece of that trickiness that I'm asking about, you know. Oh yeah, it's dude, yeah. it's Cheech and Chong, man. It's funny. Sonny, who used to be one of the singers of the band, who's one of the funniest human beings I've ever met in my life, he said that we, we got interviewed once. And it was all a really like heavy, like Chicano interview. And, the, and, and, and he's all posed with the question, Cesar Chavez or Cheech and Chong. And he was like, dude, we're down, but Cheech and Chong, you know what I mean? Like Manic chose Cheech and Chong. So we oh. we don't have a stance on anything. We are just fucking make fun of everything. It's, I mean, it's funny, but I played a Cinco de Mayo show with you. Yes. Uh, which, you know, you know, because my, you know, my drummer seems to think he's not Irish. Um <laughs> But anyway, and it was, and and no, it it was, it was great. It was the first time I really kind of got that this isn't all that heavy a thing. I mean, to me, there's a certain pride in putting your hand up and waving it around that way. There's a certain empowerment aspect. Absolutely. 100%. But if anybody ever went at such a space with very little self-consciousness, it's fucking you guys. Oh, dude, we're definitely not apologetic about, about much, dude. You know, you know, there's, because it, it, it's a joke it's all a joke you know i mean you're also not fucking los crudos you know it's just it's, no, it's, exactly it's we're, you know we're not like i'd say like before steve left us the the, the last songs we we did together mm-hmm. there was a little more of a message in some of them some of mm-hmm. them he was really wanted to make sure that we started kind of projecting more of a message and mm-hmm. and we do a little bit on the last record you know there's there's some i think some we touch on some things but we make sure everyone knows that like we're totally making fun of ourselves too. You know what I mean? And like, you do, we're just shedding light on, I think an experience that so many other Mexican kids had growing up in Southern California, you know what I mean? And that we're in the punk scene. Like it's, it's kind of funny, dude. I mean, that's kind just, of what, that's kind of what I was happened. reaching for is that there's gotta be an aspect to enjoying that band. And I'm not talking about whether or not the band or not is, or is not enjoyable, but there's gotta be a certain way of enjoying that band that just isn't available to somebody who doesn't share that heritage. And it should be that way. Oh, 100%, dude. 100%. It definitely is a shared kind of, I don't know, man. I think we have this vibe. You feel it in the crowd. Like, mm-hmm. we're all together in this. And, like, yeah. it, it's like fucking punk rock is ours, too. You know what I mean? And I think that uh, Latin people's contribution to punk rock is so fucking massive and great. And it's also cool to hear the perspective of, like, an older Mexican punker that was you know, the fly in the buttermilk at the show. You know what I mean? Well, like, a, dude, here's like, an interesting thing I hadn't thought about. This enormous, largely Latino scene in Los Angeles now, hardcore oh, yeah. scene, you know, this under under the overpass type scene, right? I wonder if that happens or happens in exactly that fashion without you guys. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Would you have ever, ever, ever have imagined that 30 years oh, ago? No, no. I mean, dude, it's, it's insanely huge. Yeah. Like, we're not a minority anymore, man. Not here. You know what I mean? Like, it, dude. It's crazy, dude. And like, I just, and you remember, dude, I remember, I, I mean, as young as I am, the, the earliest shows I was going to, I remember being so scared at some of those fucking shows, man. Like, 
Jesus Christ, dude, like just standing in the back, dude, I'm going to get my fucking ass beat here. And was a- dude, I don't feel like that ever. You know what I mean, dude? Like, right. And that's a that's a positive evolution. It's and there, there was, awesome, dude. There was a gangster element, say at Fenders, for instance. Oh, that was different, yeah. That, that we were regularly exposed to or that I was regularly exposed to that didn't exist, you know, 20 miles south in Huntington. You know, oh, Huntington, wonderful. for all of its rumors of brawling skinheads and surfers, I'll I'll break Huntington's back with a fart. You know, but this, but this, but the scene back in those days was a oh, yeah. legitimately dangerous space. Old punkers from East LA scene, and you're just some of the shit they talk about. I'm just like, dude, fucking no one knows, dude. I'm all you, holy fuck. You know what I mean? Like that may as well have been the Lower East Side when it was fucking the Lower East Side. You know what I mean? Like ah. anybody I know who lives both acknowledges that Los Angeles in the 1980s was the most dangerous place in the country. On Earth, anybody, <laughs> yeah, anybody, but I'm saying anybody who lived, you know, the birthing years of this thing, and maybe was oh, yeah. exposed to both coasts, you know, I'll let I'll I will let Harley Flanagan chase me with an eight ball and a sock for the next two years before I'll six spend six months in a room full of knives, you know, it's just you know, and that's not meant to put down our friend in his sock. It's just saying it was it was sort of a place where legitimate street crime met music for a stretch of years yeah you know yeah absolutely dude that's the one thing man like there's always been a big gangster element in music and not just in punk dude you know what i mean fucking frank sinatra and all that bullshit it's just always for some reason rock and roll and crime has always gone hand in hand dude how many of our friends dude but come on dude just yeah just knuckleheads dude you know what i mean you know uh uh Manic Hispanic never like really toured a ton or anything. Uh-huh. And I remember talking to Steve about it. And I'm like, man, how come at around this time, blah, 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 you guys didn't even try to tour? And he's all, you know what, man? It's all fucking manic, man. Someone's always sick or in jail, dude. You know, like, you know? <laughs> it's just funny, dude. I remember it, old and it, lovable. Exactly. So we've talked about, you know, you experiencing labels at different points in their evolution, talking about you yeah. being down to play shows, you know. You'll play, a, you'll play a squat in DBS at the drop of a hat, right? Yeah. The most active, most productive, most ground-level DIY venue on the West Coast is not a club. It's your freaking skate shop. So how did program happen, and how did that aspect of program happen? Um, I'm sitting in the back of program right now, ladies and gentlemen listening, and it's <laughs> beautiful, as Dano can see. It is uh, a glamorous, glamorous spot. It really is. Well, my good friend Chris, who... Uh, owned a shop previous to this called shelter he's just an old friend and uh we've collaborated musically and different projects this and that back in the day and uh uh he came up with this idea to to combine the skate shop which is something he had done before with music and bring the worlds together because it makes sense it goes hand in hand it always has and so i dove in head first with chris and we uh got this thing off the ground and little by little you know, come on, you know, trying to get make a show happen at the shop. A few years later, we were just like, holy shit. Like, we have, like, managers and agents calling us, and we're telling them, oh, this isn't a venue. Like, like But F, know? it is. It is now. Yeah, yeah. It, it, we know that. But, it is. but for people, and this, these are the things I want to ask you about. You're kind of gatewaying it for me. Yeah. For older people that are listening to this from the West Coast, it is almost identical in size, a little bit bigger, but it's essentially Zed Records. 100%. All right. 
It even kind of uh-huh. looks like Zed's. It's, it's carrying more skate stuff, but it's a pure record store. You know, people have their asses up against the record bins when they're watching bands there. Yeah. Yet it is a night in, night out live venue that has almost no drama. Well, first off, were there legal it's challenges insane. to that? Like early on, was it sketchy? Was it scary? And was there harassment? And how has it been so sustainable? Because it's been going for years now. We've only had a handful of weird little incidents but like for dude i it's crazy i don't whether it's the thuggiest dudes that come in mm-hmm. or little emo guys they all don't want it to stop so nobody fucks with the space no man and and obviously we've had couple little things stolen here and there or like after bane played two sets in one night mm-hmm. you know we had like a hole in the drywall we were like worth it because dude it was just <laughs> like so crazy and and uh uh which bane did Dude, they the place was packed. So many people outside that they cleared it out and refilled it and did it again. We nice. couldn't believe it. Those guys are one of the no one cooler. But uh, uh, yeah, dude, we get we dude cops drive by. We're I was going to say, dude. does the city of Fullerton know what you're doing, dude? We had a cop walk in through the double doors one day, and I was like, oh fuck! And I run up to him. I'm like, oh, so sorry. So he's like. No, man, I'm just checking it out. And I'm like, oh, God, thank God, because these are some of the worst fucking cops on earth. But uh, uh, <laughs> uh hope they're not listening. But, uh, uh, dude, uh, they just leave us alone. I mean, one time we had a cop come in here and talk to us and just kind of like, oh, we know what you guys are doing. So then we just kind of cooled it for a little while on shows, you know. Right. And then they just I, – I think they know that, like, at least there's a good – group of little local skaters and if they need they're all here right at every one of those shows dude there and so it's less people fucking shit up somewhere else i think and so that's the that that's the that's the practical my other question about program from your perspective is that a lot of what you put on there is young is very young yeah is it relatable for you or is, is is the music itself relatable for you because for me i often times find that it's not or is it more about you can see what that audience is getting out of it and you can totally relate to that you know what i learn about i see a lot of different stuff all the time because you know when i'm not touring i work in production i tour manage people i work at festivals and and i'll see shit where kids are going fucking bonkers and it just it kind of makes me feel rad to watch kids just go bonkers mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like like it's just kind of cool and also like i've really embraced the idea i've heard uh ad rock from beastie boys say this he, he's like I shouldn't understand stuff <laughs> that young, you know, and, 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 and I remember hearing this interview and relating where he's like, he's like an also on that note, a kid that young shouldn't give a fuck about what I think. Cause dude. And I really took that to heart. I'm all dude. When I, Oh yeah. When I was like 16, if some 48 year old dude would have walked up to me and been like, Hey, da, 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 you know, I'd be what? Fuck you. You don't know shit. That's 100% my perspective. You right. Know, and, and a mutual friend of ours, Chris Lisk and I, we kind of bumped heads about about where I was booking certain bands because he's talking about the 21 and over thing, which right. I get sort of from a moral standpoint. But at yeah. the end of the day, Dude. I don't know how much I can relate to a 19 year old who wants to see my 55 year old ass sing. Because nineteen-year-old oh. Dan would not have given a fuck about about no, no. any fifty-five-year-old, about anybody past the half-century mark. Totally, and, and and that being said, I don't. I young kids do get into your band. Young kids do get in our band, and not it's not all a turn off, but 
There's an archaeologist everywhere, dude. I don't expect them. No, there are. And I don't expect them to, though. You know what I mean? But uh, if they do, fucking dope. Welcome. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, you, can't, you give a fuck about what my old ass has to say. You know, but 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 the thing is, we still have things to say. You know what I mean? I, so our story's not written. We have mm-hmm. to keep saying shit, man. Well, I mean, I think it would be ugly to be anti-all ages. I'm just saying that I don't think that 21 and over is the prohibition it once was. I think it's relevant. No, 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 no. It's it relevant. largely gets lost when your audience average is 47 years old. You know? 100%, dude. Yeah. So a few seconds ago, you talked about tour managing and you talked about being involved in other people's music. And that's what I want to close with. Besides okay. the shop, besides your own music, you could arguably be labeled a, a workaholic despite your laid back nature. Because 100%. I know you've got other shit going on. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I, I want to hear about it before we out. I do production. I do. Uh, I do a lot of tour managing. For a while now, I've been primarily working with. I've worked with a ton of punk bands and stuff over the years. A lot of our friends and stuff. But uh, I just got off a tour with a Swedish artist called Young Lean. Sound. He's a SoundCloud guy, trap cloud rapper, makes trap music. And then, uh, what do another, you really expect me to say, sir? Just tell me it, about the experience. It's it, it's amazing, man. I really like it, and it's cool seeing. As much as I like playing in the the dive with DBS, mm-hmm. I like seeing someone else's dream come true, which isn't sure. mine. You know what I mean? And like seeing a production get built from inception to completion and watching that crowd get so emotionally affected by it in whatever kind of music. It could be a party thing. It could be a serious band. It could be an old band, a new band. It's just cool to watch that happen. And uh, it's cool to be around other artists that do something completely different than what we do and watch how they do it and uh, experience art from a completely different perspective, man. It's fucking cool, you know? Okay. And uh, I I really like that. And, uh, and things that I just wouldn't have ever even known existed, you know, (laughs) you know, and now you're shot, you're shot calling in that space. Impressive. It's, it's, it's pretty neat, man. And, uh, I also love working production at festivals just because I've gotten to be ringside and meet dream bands, you know? There is there is this thing that I run across a lot doing this show, which yeah. is I come across people who maybe are not making a living off their band or solely off their bands, but really they are surviving by remaining within the creative sphere and in, sphere and in creative spaces and being surrounded by creative people. And my envy for them is is without bounds and now, fucker, you can add yourself to that list. Fuck yeah. Dude, hey, you want to fucking make a bluegrass record tomorrow, bro? Fucking <laughs> let me know. You have I, no, I have this fantasy f- f- fusion in my head about blues and punk rock and hardcore. You yeah. Know, the, this, 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 this cross-section of just dirty, desperate music with an undeniable rhythm and just a little velocity. You know? I love dirty, desperate music. <laughs> so much. All right. Ah. I'm going to get out from here, Ephraim, and I'll thank you for a dirty, desperate conversation. Yeah, dude. Dude, thanks for having me, man. This is cool. I'm a, I'm a fan of your podcast for a long time. I love the episodes. And I, I texted you about him earlier. I'm going to shout out shout out Vic Bondi. Yo, dude, you're, you put the G in genius. That's crazy. Like, at that moment in time, everything he was saying was, like, helping me. I was like, oh, I need this. He said it at the beginning of that episode. We're going at it cold. He and I had no previous interaction before we started taping and it's one of my and it's one of my all-time favorite favorite conversations it was incredible 
So anyways, well, that is a very selfless way of you to close this out. No. Everybody, that is episode 54 with Ephraim Schultz. Dan O says so. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.